Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide entrepreneurial learning and business training to visual artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. I'd like to take a moment to mention Art Expo New York, April 19th through 22nd, the world's largest fine art trade show. It's at Pier 94, and the Clark Hewlings Fund will be there, giving a presentation called Mightier Marketing for Visual Artists. We're going to talk about how to turn an art practice into a compelling, ongoing narrative narrative and an engaging social story. That's at 2.45 p.m. Friday, April 20th. Join us again at Art Expo New York. For more info, go to artexponewyork.com. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our New Hampshire listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Ellen McCaleb and Jim McDermott. Our guest today is Alice Loy. Now, Alice is the co-founder and CEO of Creative Startups, a Santa Fe-based accelerator program with a presence in cities around the U.S., as well as in the Middle East and Asia. She has researched creative industries for over 15 years and designed and taught university-level courses in social entrepreneurship. She holds a Ph.D. in strategic communication and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the show, Alice. Hi. Thanks for having me. Alice, you know, Creative Startups launched in 2007. I'm really curious, what compelled you to start the first accelerator? Originally, we started working with artists back in 2007, and our vision was to take the creative and intellectual property assets that were unique to New Mexico and help artists turn those into stronger livelihoods. But increasingly, after the Great Recession, we were seeing artists struggle to just make basic payments on bills, mortgage payments, uh, even just putting gas in the car to be able to go to an art show and um, make it through the next month. So in about 2011, we decided that the system was so broken in terms of how we invest in and support creatives that we needed to take a much more disruptive approach. And we looked around to see where were entrepreneurs being really well nurtured and supported and um, treated as uh, more than just economic sort of drivers. And what we saw at that time was the tech industry and what was going on with accelerators. Uh, so we thought, what if we did an accelerator? And we spent a couple of years planning and then launched it in late 2013. Now, you bill creative startups as building the creative economy. What exactly is the creative economy? The creative economy is one of the fastest growing sectors globally. It grows at about 8% annually, and it includes industries such as publishing, uh, digital media, design, gaming, music, film, museums, um, visual arts, performance arts, photography. So it is uh, widely modeled in terms of categorizing what falls into the creative economy after John Howkins' very well-known book, uh, Turning Ideas into Businesses. And uh, it includes the wide range of things that come out of human creativity. So where the products are based on the creative processes and um, the exchange of ideas. So in most cases, it's related to something artistic, but it can also be something like artificial intelligence or software uh, that helps people learn language or uh, publishing platforms. So the creative economy is a wide range of industries. Um, and in the U.S., the only difference in terms of how we measure and talk about the creative economy 
as compared to Asia or Europe, for example, is we don't tend to include software uh, because in the U.S. software is such an enormous industry that it uh, and we have software for biomedical companies, for automation, for transportation, for all kinds of industries. Um, so that's the only area where the U.S. sort of falls out of how the rest of the world measures the creative economy and the creative industries. Now, just to clarify, it sounds like you're defining the creative economy primarily by the output being creative, but is it accurate to say that it's also by industry or by the founder's approach, regardless of industry, or is it a constellation of things and not any one thing? That's a really good question. Um, and we are always mindful to point out that all entrepreneurs are creative. So we're never excluding anyone by saying, oh, she's a creative entrepreneur. He's a creative entrepreneur. Um, instead, we're referencing a specific list of industries. I would not consider, for example, uh, someone who is very creative but has developed a vaccine and launched a pharmaceutical company, I wouldn't call that a creative sector company. That would uh, fall into the health and pharmaceutical industries. However, if you are, for example, a filmmaker that does film and media based on improving outcomes for treatments of degenerative diseases, then you would be a creative economy entrepreneur. And again, these aren't really our definitions. We we borrow the definitions that are put forward by the UN and uh, the World Bank and a lot of very global sort of think tanks and groups that define these industries as the creative economy. Well, I was curious about, you know, because we can all, we can go out to the farthest reaches of, of what might qualify, but there's probably a particular uh, commonality um, uh, more of a middle or a mode or a median of of the type of creative startups that you work with. I'm curious in particular, do you work with individual artist entrepreneurs? We do uh, through some of our community-based programs and through currently we have a program called Libraries as Launchpads. And uh, those are programs really well suited to individual artists, uh, be they musicians or visual artists or uh, another kind of artist. And uh, those programs are designed to help artists identify ways to stabilize and incrementally grow their business, whereas our acceleration programs, our accelerators, and our pre-accelerators are really designed for creatives who are growing growth companies. So companies where they plan to have 100, 300 employees in the next five years. Now, when we were talking before the show, you were talking with our producer, you had mentioned that you serve companies that have, quote, early revenue, understand economics, and are ready to scale. I'm curious. Now, it sounds like you're talking about enterprise uh, or about a full-on startup with investors, rounds of funding, and sort of all the things that take somebody toward that sort of enterprise trajectory. Is that right? Yeah, in our accelerator programs, yes, for sure. Our intention there is to support entrepreneurs, creative entrepreneurs, growing companies where they will then offer jobs to creatives and help grow a creative industry into something new. Um, our premise has always been that creatives can and should own the companies that creatives work at and that creative people are uniquely suited to understand opportunities and problems and therefore develop solutions for market uh, opportunities. 
And therefore, we would like to see more creatives owning companies instead of just trying to get jobs in companies. I think, you know, across time, we've thought about artists and creatives as people who either work on their own developing a piece of art or get a job at a company. And we really question that assumption because we see a lot of problems that need extremely creative approaches. And we think that creative entrepreneurs have the unique ability to uh, really build community and connections among people across cultures, uh, exchanging creative ideas, exchanging stories and what it means to be human, um, hopefully building a more compassionate and sustainable world. And so we would like to see more and more creatives feel and be equipped to be founders and leaders of growth companies and driving social change through those companies instead of just graduating from a design program and going to get a job. We'd rather say, well, you could be an entrepreneur and build a company that that embraces the values that really lead to thriving, healthy communities. What would it take? And we give them, hopefully, a, a good start on what it takes. So the, these are small businesses that are um, on a trajectory of becoming a growth company and obviously going through, in many ways, the, the traditional stages of growth. I'm curious, what are some of the unique challenges that these entrepreneurs face, or are there any generalities you can draw, and are they the same for all startups, or are they particular to this sort of track of becoming growth companies? Some of the challenges are the same that founders of any kind of company might face, but some of the challenges are different. Most creatives coming out of, if they've been through a degree program, for example, uh, let's say they studied music. They probably didn't take accounting. They probably didn't take a marketing class. They most likely have not thought about what it might be like to work with investors or to do organizational development for a startup team. Uh, So there are a lot of things that they can learn quite readily that they just haven't been exposed to yet. I always joke that it seems like when they design university campuses, they put the business school on one side and the art school on the other side, and never the two shall meet. But interestingly, a lot of the most uh, sort of dynamic and present companies in our lives today were founded by people who were creatives and who figured out the business side of things. So some of the challenges are just not knowing what they don't know, not knowing what it takes to start a business. And probably the biggest challenge, therefore, is feeling like they don't necessarily have the skills or the capacity to build a company just because they don't know what it takes. So one of the things that we focus on is not only giving them what they need to know, but reassuring that now you know what there is to know. That's it. There's no other secret pile of knowledge that you need in order to start a company. Some of the challenges that all startups face are things that probably stem mostly from being human, like developing products that people don't actually really want, (laughs) or not getting along with your team, your co-founding team, and not being able to come to terms about how to build the company. It's sort of, you know, it's more common for a, a company to fall apart due to internal team and culture issues than market issues. Um... A lot of startups struggle to move fast enough to get into the market with something that gains traction, and they just run out of money. And probably the biggest challenge that all people face when they have an idea 
and think about, okay, I'm going to put this into action through a company is just moving forward, taking that first step, second step, third step, fourth step, and really weathering the challenges and the ups and downs. So a lot of what we do is work that would be relevant to any startup, but uh, we take a special approach in understanding creatives. Um, most of our team has a creative background. I'm probably the exception. <laughs> um, I have an MBA and a PhD, but most of our team has worked the majority of their professional lives in theater or design or other um, creative fields. And so they really understand what creatives need and where they come from and, and how they might approach building a company more successfully. Okay, so I've got a, a couple more questions uh, in the first segment of the show, and I, I want to ask you, uh, first I'll mention that, of course, there's a lot of overlap in, in what you've said, uh, especially with the issue of just uh, <laughs> maintaining forward momentum that applies to our core demographic, which are uh, individual visual artists who do have some differences from sort of the traditional um, creative entrepreneur trajectory. Uh, there's a balance with visual artists. You know, it is important to make something that people want to buy. If it's not commercially viable, um, then you don't you don't have a business. Uh, you have a hobby. Um, you may love it. You may be an artist, but you have a hobby. So at some point, we have to have that discussion. But also, there's a sense in which um, persistence in being sure that what you have to contribute and what you want to make that that, that is valuable. Um, that pays off past the point I would say of rationale in a normal sort of market research environment. So there's some slight differences between our audience's core assumptions and uh, creative entrepreneurs in general, but mostly there is overlap. And so the concepts covered in, in many ways are very similar. So, so spinning off of that, what are some of the unique challenges that entrepreneurs face uh, that are around investment capital? Uh, so I'm wondering if, for instance, the creative economy is really hurting for investment capital, or if this is sort of the hottest growth area right now. I don't think people have a lot of sense of what the level of potential support is. Yeah, so that's such an interesting question because a lot of the dominance, if you will, of the tech sector is because there's so much capital there. And so a lot of people are drawn to that area and a lot of companies are started there that frankly are not meaningful companies solving real problems that need to be solved, but there's money there. And so there's just sort of extra margin for people to do superfluous work, but still get paid. The creative economy is not like that right now. Uh, there are relatively few uh, investment dollars going into the creative economy. There are relatively few impact investment dollars going into the creative economy. And 10 years ago, I would have said there is really almost no way to to raise early funding for a creative startup. But now we have Kickstarter and Indiegogo and other platforms that have really changed where creatives can go to raise money for a very early sort of stockpile of capital to get going. Um, I think at last count, Kickstarter has contributed somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion to creative companies that are getting started or projects. And that was founded by a creative entrepreneur, uh, a filmmaker and a poet and a designer. <laughs> so they founded that company precisely because they understood that creatives have a hard time going to investors. There's a mismatch in the language that is spoken. And um, most investors tend to, at least institutional and professional investors, tend to write creatives off as 
artists who probably can't figure out how to run a business. And that's because most investors are people who follow the herd. So you have a few investors who are Stuart Alsup would be one. He understands. He's with Alsup Louis Partners, um, which is a large VC fund. He certainly understands the creative economy and is making investments. And we're seeing a shift. TPG is a very large fund out of Silicon Valley, which bought Cirque du Soleil and bought uh, Gibson Guitars. They also own Gibson. Um, So we're seeing a shift and more and more professional investors are starting to recognize the value, the uh, really under, under tapped value of the creative economy. But if you are a solo entrepreneur trying to figure out how to raise funding from investors and you're in the creative sector, you're going to have a really tough time. Well, yeah, uh, that's precisely where I was going is what, who are the target investors? Uh, you know, is there a particular demographic or profile? You know, are we looking for the Elon Musk uh, or the, um, or, or who exactly? Well, I don't know that there uh, right now are is any sort of list that, you, that one could turn to in the way that you can with the tech economy to say, you know, these are the top 100 investors doing tech investment right now. We don't have anything like that for the creative economy, uh, which is too bad because that piece of knowledge can help solve a lot of the inefficiencies between a startup and an investor, both of whom, when matched well, get value out of that relationship. However, I think increasingly there are new types of investment firms. So, for example, Backstage Capital with Arlen Hamilton is an interesting company that is funding creatives, people of color and women and LGBTQ people who uh, really can't find financing in the male, white, dominated traditional investment scene. Um, So there is a a rising awareness among uh, people that there are untapped opportunities to be investors looking at markets in different ways, which will eventually mean more dollars for creatives. The other piece that I think is really important is to talk about the language that we use around creatives. Um, Unfortunately, tech, I always say, is sort of like this 800-pound gorilla that eats everything in sight because people say that tech, oh, that's a tech company. When increasingly what I think tech companies or tech startups really means is um, it's a company founded with a certain set of values and approaches to solving problems that may or may not be very relevant to people either outside of Silicon Valley or uh, New York or other urban westernized communities. So you start to run out of opportunities if you're an investor because those communities are not necessarily coming up with more and more. However, if you look outside of those domains, you see investment opportunities, whether you're talking about specific industries or geographies or types of founders, et cetera, the investment opportunities are moving outside of what has traditionally been quote unquote tech and moving toward things like the creative economy, uh, like the Middle East, like Africa, like Latin America, where we're seeing a lot of really interesting startup activity and the dollars just haven't caught up yet. Yeah, so in many ways, what stymies us is not a, is not having a profile of the ideal investor, not having a list that you know isn't necessarily who we go after, but is representative of that profile. And it just seems like the the early attractors and winners of uh, investment capital among creative startups are sort of the pioneers. Let me ask you a related question then. 
your about page at Creative Startups says that this particular economy is underserved. And of course, uh, we make that argument extensively at ClarkHealingsFund.org uh, that visual artists uh, as an entrepreneurial class are underserved. They typically have more than average education. Uh, a much higher number of them are self-employed, and yet they are not provided the same opportunities for entrepreneurial learning and entrepreneurial support that other professionals are. And so, uh, of course, um, CHF exists to fulfill that need. But when we zoom out to creative professionals in general, why is it that Creative Startups says that they are underserved? Well, if you look at where the majority of support for entrepreneurship has gone over the last decade or two decades, it is the tech economy, the tech sector. Engineering programs, by and large, all offer entrepreneurship degree programs, not just classes, but degree programs, whereas there are a growing number of quote-unquote arts management programs but management is not entrepreneurship. Management prepares you to get a job. So you might get a job at a museum, which is great, but that's very different from saying, I'm starting a museum. I'm starting with nothing. I'm growing something. I will have something in 10 years that has changed the world. Those are different processes. So generally speaking, when you look at the resources that are available for creatives, uh, in terms of entrepreneurship, there's very little. And I think I think going back to why is that, really pushing on why is that, I think we have a cultural value of artists and creatives that um, they provide something that is optional, nice but not necessary, and there's an assumption that there isn't a lot of economic return tied to what they do, which is odd because the data is very contrary to that. And instead, we just saw Spotify, right, a creative company, go public uh, and do extremely well a week ago. WhatsApp is in the advertising industry. Uh, Facebook, you could argue, is a creative company in that it is based on advertising and using visual and graphic design to generate returns. But instead, we call it a tech company. So a lot of the sort of glory, if you will, around what's available has gone to quote-unquote tech when really it could have been a company or a resource that was brought about through creatives by creatives. So it's important to, to start claiming what is ours in the creative economy and and not be limited because things are changing so much. We live in a completely different economy than we did 20 years ago. There are jobs now that none of us have ever heard of. and Things are being reclassified, re-understood, um, uh, put to bed that won't come back. And as creatives, I think it's important that we say, this is our kind of company. If it's a Spotify, that's a music company that uses technology to connect people around music. Um, so when we think about it that way, there are more resources. But when we just think about people going through, for example, a design program, they probably don't have an opportunity to take an entrepreneurship course. They might be able to take an arts management course, but they probably don't have an entrepreneurship course. Um, and if they do, it's more small business oriented. Whereas if you go to Stanford, MIT, et cetera, you will have an array of courses designed for engineers that are preparing them to found growth companies. That is the presumption is that they're in that class because they're going to go on to found a growth company. 
And we don't even really open that door for artists and creatives. We don't say to them when they're 18 years old and starting an arts program that there's a good chance they could go on to found a, a company that's really meaningful. Instead, we say, well, when you graduate, if you can get a job, which it puts a completely different shift and, and framework around what it means to be an artist and a creative. It's very limiting. I want to take a moment and just remind our listeners as we go into segment two of the show that Art Expo New York is coming up April 19th through 22nd. That's the world's largest fine art trade show. And at 2.45 p.m. on April 20th, which is the Friday, uh, you can join the Clark Hewlings Fund for a presentation about telling your story as an artist entrepreneur to better reach your audience and grow your exposure. So more information is at artexponewyork.com. I'm hoping personally to see you out there. So I want to ask you, Alice, uh, a question pivoting now toward um, accelerators in general, startups, and education. Who's the ideal accelerator candidate? How do you identify, you know, sort of the potential in them and, and who's going to be a success? Oh, that's that's a, a tough question because um, you we're the first to say that we we can't really know where a particular market is going because we can't be experts in all things related to the creative economy. So, for example, Meow Wolf, which came through our accelerator in 2014, uh, I clearly remember watching their application video and thinking, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I just couldn't get it. Um, and nobody else could either. However, there was one thing that indicated that they might be onto something, and that was that they had done a previous project called uh, The Do Return, which was a ship that you could crawl into and explore. And it was an exhibit, but it was like this other world where you could go inside of a pirate ship and explore it and open doors and it would turn into a portal into a different world. And and they had 25,000 visitors in two months in Santa Fe, which is a pretty small city. And we thought, wow, that is enormously successful. For somebody who did this on a tiny budget and with recycled materials and just word of mouth marketing, basically, that's interesting. So they had a track record, basically. They had done something that worked and that had a life of its own. And that was interesting to us, as well as there was a team of founders. So Meow Wolf is founded by six people. And they now, of course, have about 300 employees. And having a team makes all the difference in the world. So when we have applications open for the accelerators, and we have two open right now, we are really clear that having a team gives you a far better chance of getting into the accelerator, having a track record. And the track record doesn't necessarily have to be tied to money. Um, we do strongly preference companies that already have revenue, um, mostly because the the Accelerator is more relevant to you if you already have clients and you have revenue and costs. But we also like to see entrepreneurs that have said they were going to do this and they did it. And then they said they were going to do this and they did that. And they, they execute. They get the job done because at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is not about ideas. It's about getting the job done. Now, one of the things that came up in uh, a workshop I taught, in fact, um, day before yesterday, is one of the, the first definitions of 
of a pro uh, versus an amateur is a pro does what they say when they say. And um, so that, yeah, I, I like that you're sort of calling that out, not only as a criteria. I mean, of course, you're sort of talking about what the criteria are for an accelerator with creative startups, but in general, it is a criteria to scale at all. Yeah. And a criteria to sort of take your, your business seriously and, and reach a trajectory, whatever yeah. that trajectory is. Um, and to be taken seriously by others who can facilitate your success. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is not understanding that they pose a risk and an opportunity to the network. And so they need to figure out if I go to this person who either has money or has a store I want to be in or a website I want to be mentioned on. There's both an opportunity for that other person, but there's also a risk. What if you blow it? What if you show up late? What if you don't package your product well when you ship it to me and it gets here broken? Those kinds of risks people are watching out for. And if you perform well and you do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it and it comes out well, then you take that risk off the table and now you have a partner. We talk a lot about that with the entrepreneurs because a big part of what we do is connect them to mentors who are successful creative entrepreneurs. We have about 120 mentors globally, and we, we coach startups on understanding how to manage that relationship thoughtfully so that those mentors will keep opening doors for them because they see them come through time and time again. So it's funny, we, uh, we also talked uh, recently with our crowd about the importance of building a, a, what we call a power collective or an effective team, that going it alone is, is sort of fool's gold. And um, I think a lot of people don't fully grasp how important it is that that team is not just for emotional support and sort of personal accountability, it's not a crutch, but how important it is to build a team of other like-minded people who think professionally and act professionally that that team is essentially an extension of your own practice area. Um, so whether that's a collaborative team or a collaborative network, very much like we build with the Clark Healings Fund and the Artist Federation, uh, or it is the team that is directly embedded in a, a particular startup and is going after rounds of funding, such as Ghost of a Dream, which would be um, an artist collective that's husband and wife that, that we've worked with. The principle is the same, to professionalize the process. And I want to ask you, sort of a spin-off question about that. You know, in addition to your, your doctorate, you have an MBA and Master of Business Administration. Let me ask you about that. How do business concepts or practical skills that are needed by creative entrepreneurs differ from, say, the content of a traditional MBA? Why not uh, sort of just get a traditional MBA? <laughs> so um, I, I did my MBA gosh, 20 years ago. And... Um, at the time, uh, I was fascinated as someone who was working in social justice and advocacy work. I was fascinated by the fact, and it's still a fact, that, that business people tend to make the decisions that run our politics and our judicial system and our schools. And unfortunately, um, so much has been dominated by corporate interests. And I couldn't figure out why, what, what did they know? that I didn't know and that maybe I could understand and then leverage to use in the social change sector. And it turns out that what they knew was that it's really easy to get organized around a single bottom line. It's just a really easy way to tell people how to do things and what to do. If you only are measuring for profit, 
then it's pretty straightforward what everybody is supposed to do. So frankly, when I did an MBA, I was pretty disappointed by the lack of intellectual rigor that it involved. Um, but that said, the the process of learning the structure of how markets work and how a business works, and it is true that management and uh, you know the culture of an organization shapes where it can go and what it can achieve. So there are a, a fair number of things that I still lean on, and there are some things that are just basic sort of skills that you have to know. You have to know how to manage your cash flow. You have to be able to forecast it and plan for it. You have to know uh, how to manage a 24-month calendar and think about things from a 30,000-foot view so that you can build your operations seamlessly. Um, there are things like that that you learn in an MBA program, partly because most MBAs tend to think that way anyway. Uh, so you're sort of steeped in a culture of people who see the world that way. But if you're a creative, I don't know that an MBA is necessarily essential. I don't think an MBA prepares people well, or or I should say a traditional MBA prepares people well for being an entrepreneur. A lot of the coursework that I did was related to working in a company and being one cog in the wheel. And I, I don't know that that's actually very useful for entrepreneurs. I think some of the more brass tax accounting, cash flow management, legal issues are, are things that you can take at a community college and, and get just the same value as you would if you did an MBA. The only other piece that's really valuable is that you come out confident that you understand how business works, because you do. That doesn't mean that you know how to build a company necessarily, but uh, you do know what's what's behind the curtain when you say, I know how to run a business. You've been there, done that if you've done an MBA pretty much. So it builds confidence. I wouldn't recommend that creatives go and do an MBA. Frankly, I would say look for a design program that has entrepreneurship classes and you'll probably find much more like-minded people and gain a lot more value in terms of knowledge and skills and networks than you would if you did a traditional MBA. Well, I would say come to uh, uh, the Clark Healings Fund, uh, where <laughs> we, we provide a program like that, uh, the Business Accelerator Program for Visual Artists, which is like an MBA for artists, but customized for this audience. But my experience is that uh, an MBA doesn't necessarily give you the real world criteria necessary to run a business. I've seen a lot of MBAs that have been there, done that. I'm like, have, what have you done? It's like, well, I graduated. And it's like, okay, that's different. Uh, but on the ground, uh, a lot of what you've learned is obsolete by the time you learn it. So a lot of business articles advise always returning to or, or staying cl in close touch with startup mode, uh, keeping the life, the drive, the innovation in the company never really growing stale. And one could argue it's especially necessary in the current economy. Uh, what are your thoughts? When, if ever, does a company graduate from, in fact, being a, a startup, or, or do they ever? Oh, that's so interesting because we're going through that right now. Um, and I do think you have to move out of scrappy mode, partly because it's hard for the team to understand who's doing what, and you start to exhaust people and fumble and lose efficiency. And um, at some point, I do think people have to move out of startup mode and move into uh, this part we can still be startup-y about, but this part over here we tinker less with. This part we leave alone. 
So I think it varies a lot, though, by industry, by company, by team. And the the one thing that I think is really interesting now is the sharing economy has generated a conversation around underutilized resources. So for us, we are always thinking about how are we leaving a resource just sitting there? That's something that either we could sell in a different way or we could give away that somebody could use better or that we could use twice. Or um, And so I think that's one area where um, especially startups need to be focused is don't leave any resource just sitting there. It needs to be constantly active and constantly in use. Um, and I think uh, one of the struggles that we've had, at least at Creative Startups, is knowing when we've hit that sort of next, we feel the growing pains, but now we're on a new plateau. Okay, well, what, how, what do we get rid of that we don't need anymore and we don't need to do anymore? And it could be a way that we interact with each other. It could be a software program that we've been using and sort of adjusting along those lines. So uh, Creative Startups is also working on the Libraries as Launchpads program, which is an initiative of the New Mexico State Department of Arts and Culture. And as I understand it, these startup founders in the program are at absolute square one, needing to move essentially from idea to action. Is that right? And if yep. so, is this more of a pre-accelerator program? It's almost a pre-pre-accelerator. So here in New Mexico, so we do work... Um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we work in the Middle East, we work in Asia, we uh, have done programs in Latin America, and we have three accelerators across the U.S. right now. However, we're based in New Mexico, and we love New Mexico, and our why do we do this is because we are passionate about the culture and the creatives of New Mexico, and so we always kind of come back to our home here. And the benefit of being in a very rural, uh, low-income state is that's very rich in creative and cultural assets is that we can pilot projects that can go anywhere in the world because we can pilot a project in Albuquerque, which is in an urban environment, and figure out, okay, would that work in New York? Or a project that has distributed education uh, in rural areas, and we could take that to Africa. So right now we're piloting the Libraries as Launchpads program. And we're partnering with the uh, State Library, which oversees and supports 97 public libraries across New Mexico. And we picked five libraries and one community center who came to us, and they, they wanted to be a part of this. And uh, the entrepreneurs, there was an application process. People from all over the state applied. And we do the classes. I'll teach the class tonight. It's every Thursday for five weeks, and it's very basic how to think about a startup. Um, they're creatives, and they have everything from a 3D printing business to a graphic design and t-shirt company, a photographer, a high-end sort of pet accessories company. Some of the startups are a little further along. They have revenue, uh, and some of the startups haven't even yet started talking to customers. And either way, we can work with them. And the idea is less about helping them understand specific ways to grow their business and more about helping people connect to the startup ecosystem. Because a lot of times creatives 
just don't know what's out there. And there are resources that are relevant to them that they didn't know exist. And so this is a program that is intended to open the door wider so that more creatives from more communities and more backgrounds can come into the startup ecosystem and long after this program, be connected to resources and people who can be supportive. And libraries, of course, are fantastic community anchors. Everybody knows where their library is. Most of us grew up going to after-school programs and have a, a real love for libraries. And libraries are shifting to become less about come here and read this and to be more about come here and we help you understand this because there's so much information out in the world that people are increasingly looking for help in deciphering and understanding what's going on. And so they can be very small d democratic centers of learning and exchange for entrepreneurs, as well as other kinds of uh, community assets. And they just haven't really activated that yet in New Mexico. So that's our job is to help them activate that. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Alice's work, visit creativestartups.org. That's creativestartups.org. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Alice. It's been really great having you. Thanks. Appreciate your time.